0: If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Psalm 16 is where we'll be this morning. On December 17th, Peter Jackson released the final movie of his trilogy of The Hobbit, an adaptation, no doubt, of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings from J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, No doubt his, his masterpiece, Tolkien's that is. For many years now, scholars have been making an effort to find the interpretation of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Was Tolkien offering an allegory of his experiences in World War I or World War II? Was he allegorizing the modernization brought on by the Industrial Revolution? He saw peaceful communities swallowed up by the machines of industry and war. What exactly were we to learn from his insight? If anyone has the right to speak with some level of authority with regard to Tolkien's work, C.S. Lewis offers his critique... Of Tolkien's Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You can find his review in his book, Image and Imagination. He argues that it is not an allegory, but rather a story that captured a world of his own imagination, a world that he began developing years before the hydrogen bomb. He asks, but, but why? Why, if you must have a serious comment to make on the real life of men, must you do it by taking, talking about a phantasmagoric, can't even pronounce it, that's only C.S. Lewis can do that, phantasmagoric never-never land of your own? Why would you try to illustrate real life situations in a never-never land that you've created? He answers this. It takes all the things that we know and restores them, uh, to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. He says, the imagined beings have their insides on the outside. They are visible souls. He says, if you are tired of the real landscape, look at it in a mirror. Lewis goes on, this book applies the treatment not only to bread or apple, but to good and evil, to our endless perils, our anguish, and our joys. He contends that what Tolkien's doing is taking real-life circumstances and dipping them into a story so that we can see them more clearly, that they would linger in our mind. That in effect, what Tolkien's done is taken life and scrubbed them clean of man's philosophies and assumptions with regard to suffering and evil and victory, and allowed us to experience them with surprising realism. Now, as we turn to Psalm 16, we need to understand that God has done something more grand But the principles there. God has acted in the history of humanity and written an interpretation of his activities. He's provided a History, his story of redemption, an interpretation of his redemptive activities to give believers a a real understanding of the nature of evil. The suffering of sin is related to the the curse of sin, the promise of salvation offered in God's redemptive work in Christ. In essence, he removes the mask of human philosophy and religious tradition so that we can see through faith the reality as they ought to be seen as God sees them. Now, in order to grasp the weight of Psalm 16, we're going to have to step back and give a little bit of background. And I know we can't assume that everyone here has um, been in the faith for a long time and has had the privilege of studying the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I want to assume that some of us need to have a little bit of background on what is going on in the Old Testament. Why the sacrifices? Why uh, the nation Israel raised up? Why David? Why is it important? Because what we'll find in Psalm 16 is that there is one meaning in this text, but yet three levels of application. And we find that by Peter and Paul in Acts 2 and Acts 13. Well, one sense, this is talking about David's life before God. In another sense, uh, in application, Peter and Paul, by the Holy Spirit, applied to Jesus Christ. And then there's another sense in which we can turn back and say, we as believers have this promise and hope. But how can a psalm like Psalm 16 do that? How can it speak of David's life before God then turn around and run straight to Christ that Christ is the ultimate meaning of the text and yet also apply principally to us as well? I think for that we need to understand the story, the re- redemptive story. God has given for us in Romans 5 a cosmic story, two atoms. Romans 5 tells us that the first Adam served as a legal representative for all of humanity. He was entrusted in, in with God's law. Romans 2.15 says that God's law was written on the heart of humanity. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world because of one man and death through sin. Romans 5.18 says that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So Adam, legal representative of all humanity, trusted with God's law, disobeyed. He brought sin into the world. He transgressed. Now, I would like you to turn to Isaiah 24, and this is all going to be used in Psalm 16. So we're getting some background and how Psalm 16 can be applied in three different venues. At the same time, I hope it enriches our study of some key words that we're going to find in Psalm 16. But Isaiah 24, 4 through 6, and this may be an astounding statement to some of us who have not been in Isaiah recently. Isaiah The first half of the book is describing sin and God's coming judgment. And the second half, hope in Christ that He'll take that judgment and wrath. But we're in the first half of Isaiah, and here's what we read in verse 4 of chapter 24. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. So all of humanity is wrapped up underneath the transgression of an eternal covenant, an eternal law that God has given. Therefore, the world is cursed, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt, verse 6 says. Well, Adam... As our representative, in effect, you can see him as the the personification of this. As our representative, transgressing God's laws, violating the everlasting covenant, bringing the curse into the world. So the big picture, the big picture is that the everlasting covenant, the eternal statutes of God have been transgressed. And so the world anguishes underneath the curse of a broken covenant and awaits the day of judgment. The second Adam, though. Romans 5 tells us there's a, a second Adam, a final Adam. And he did what Adam couldn't do. He came to fulfill God's law and provide the eternal blessings in a new covenant. Now, we see these words like covenant, and we saw it in Isaiah 24, an eternal, everlasting covenant. It's correlated with statutes and laws. And for us, we don't use the term covenant, at least in our culture, but maybe it would help to think of a, a legal covenant, constitution. We understand that. So if we took the idea of a a legal covenant and a legal constitution, it might help us understand what's going on here. If you obey the terms of the legal constitution, you will enjoy the blessings guarded by that constitution, namely life and protection, but rebel against the legal constitution and you forfeit life and protection and you're cut off and you're cast out. That would be called a traitor. So legal covenant, legal constitution. Adam was given a legal constitution, a national constitution, if you will. Humanity before God. Romans 5 says, he transgressed. He was a covenant keeper. He didn't keep the covenant. We're cursed. We too are covenant breakers, lawbreakers, transgressors. Isaiah introduces to us the, the covenant servant. The servant who will bring the covenant of salvation to the world. He took the curse of the covenant. He was cut off at the cross. And he fulfilled the covenant and obtained the blessings of the covenant. And we're given those in salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the big scheme of things. We've got to understand that big picture. But what God has done, I don't want to compare him to Tolkien by any means. It's the other way around, right? Tolkien, image bearer. (laughs) What God has done is he's given redemptive narratives. Historical, real. He raised up Abraham, he raised up nation Israel. And to Israel, he gave a legal constitution at Mount Sinai with blessings and curses. You can see them in Deuteronomy 28 through 29. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. We find God giving to Israel three offices: kingly office, prophet, and priest. What are these for? They'll help us, if you will. Take the, re- the cosmic big picture reality of life, the two atoms, the violation of God's law, sin, the curse, Christ's salvation and keeping the law and paying for its curse at the cross. It's taking all of that and boiling it down so we could see it in these pictures and portraits and history and time and space. So when we see Israel marching to Mount Sinai, we are to remember what Adam did and he failed to do. When we see Israel marched out of, or the first generation perishing in the wilderness, and, the, and Israel being marched out of the land to Babylon, we see failure to keep God's law. When we see the offices, the kingly office, the prophet and the priest, we're, 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 we're meant to see the, the, the bigger cosmic reality of the second Adam, the one who is the ultimate prophet, Christ, the one who is the ultimate priest who would give himself as, a, as an offering for sin, as the Lamb of God. We're meant to see the king. So historical, real, not imaginary. When God acts redemptively in history, it's a real story. But we're meant to see the grand scheme, the big picture. And that is why when you look at something like Psalm 16, you can find David talking about himself, but as a king in the office of king in Israel, he can also be talking about the greater king, the son of David, who will come one day to represent him and all of us. Now, for for that reason, I'd like you to go back to Psalm 16. We've kind of set it up. Psalm 16. And I want you to see the text that Peter and Paul will apply to Christ. And we're going to drop into Hebrews, and we're going to note how Hebrews calls this a picture or or type. And I think we're ready for the psalm. Psalm 16. Verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall... Not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad; my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life; in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, forevermore. That's the section that's quoted. Go to Acts two twenty-three. Acts two twenty-three. Listen to the words of Peter. Now we'll close our time this morning by looking at Paul's words in Acts 13. So we'll just, we'll start with Peter for right now. Acts 2.23. This, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. We're quoting from the psalm, verse 8. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, verse 26. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I'd love to go on and I'm back there, actually, but we can't do that. Peter's saying that David, even in writing about his personal relationship with God and and, and hope and deliverance from death, Peter says that David wrote foreseeing Christ and spoke specifically of Christ. Paul will tell us the same thing. What's going on here? So David can write about himself using personal. Pronouns, my, my Lord, in you I take refuge. According to Peter and uh, Paul in in Acts 13, David is writing about Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. And yet 2 Timothy 3 16, 17 can say that this is also for our edification and for our growth. How does this work? Well, quickly go to Hebrews chapter 9. I talked about portraits and pictures. I'd like to show you that this is the Holy Spirit's verbiage. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. He's talking about the realities of the old covenant, the tent, sacrifices, ceremonies. In chapter 9, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. All I want you to see is the Holy Spirit is indicating this. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's using the tabernacle realities, saying this is meant to be a picture, a portrait. It's a symbol for the present age. Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary, again talking about the old covenant law with its pictures and portraits, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Talking about the sacrifices of the old covenant versus the sacrifice of Christ. It deals with heavenly things. Hebrews 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And talking about the sacrifices cannot take away sins. They're a shadow. And then Hebrews 10.9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. So, God acts in history. It's real. Real promises to real people nationally. And yet, he uses it as a portrait and picture for a greater reality of Christ's coming, Christ's salvation, Peter and Paul understand this, and in Psalm 16, use David as the king of Israel, knowing that the promise of the son of David, Jesus Christ, will come. It's claiming that David spoke of Jesus Christ. because this is what God is doing. Again, if it's confusing, just think what Tolkien did. He wants us to grasp the realities of suffering. What does he do? He says, well, here's the story. He puts it all together in a package so that we're dealing with real human emotions, but we're removed from, from our, our philosophies of why things are going on. And we're confronted with reality. God has done that in a much bigger sense in real history and time and space to help us grasp the ultimate cosmic story that man has a deep problem before God and needs a Savior. Psalm 16. Hopefully we're ready for it now. Four blessings for those who trust in God. David's trust in God. Christ's trust in God. And we reflect that in our trust in, in God through our unity with Jesus Christ. In our, un- our relationship with Him. Four incomparable blessings. They're amazing. Of those who trust in God. And I want to preview them for you because I can tend to just gloss over them as we get into this and I get excited. <laughs> so, they find their highest good in God's potency. And it is Lordship. Potentate is sovereign or Lord. And I kind of, when I find, you know, words that can go together, potency, person, preeminence, power, It maybe helps me out, but they find their highest good in God's lordship and its in His potency. Verses one through four, they find their inheritance in God's person. Their inheritance in God's person. Five through six, and they find their counsel in God's preeminence. Counsel in God's preeminence. Verses seven through eight, and their life in God's power of the resurrection. So highest good in God's lordship, inheritance in God's person, counsel in God's preeminence, and life in God's power Of the resurrection. Let's look at the first one. It's an incomparable blessing, because it's attached to God. They find their highest good in God's potency. Psalm 16, 1 through 4. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. They find their highest good in God's lordship. Lordship is important there. Look again at at verse 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God. El is used there. Elohim, El, describing God as creator. It's a title that describes God as creator, master, and owner. There are certain adjectives that are attached to that. To describe God as everlasting, El Alam, El Yon, God Most High, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Again, describing God's ownership, that He's the Creator, He's the Sovereign One. But then we see Yahweh, verse 2, I I say to the Lord. So he, He asks that God, who owns all things, who's the Creator and Sustainer of everything, that He preserve. And He's bold to say, I take refuge in You. God, who creates and sustains all things. You're the Creator the sovereign. And then he's so bold in verse 2 to say I say to Yahweh again capital LORD standing in for the Hebrew title Yahweh emphasizing God's self-existence. The God is. And we find this title often used in redemptive contexts because only the the self-existent independent God has the power, authority and right to redeem. And so here David has the boldness to not only ask and request that his creator would preserve him as god can do his creator he sustains providentially and he's asking for even a spiritual preservation but he can talk he says i, I say to yahweh isn't that unbelievable the, the self-existent one the one who is set apart from us the one who's distinct He speaks to him but what brings it all down is this title adonai in verse two I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. He calls Yahweh, he calls God, the creator, his master, his Lord. It's this title, Adonai, that brings us into the covenantal context. We looked at Isaiah 24, we saw an everlasting covenant that was broken. It's this title that brings us into the covenantal context. Not to mention, I'd like you to, since we're talking about covenantal context, I'd like you to drop down to verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, your Hesed, see corruption. That also is a covenantal term. And we're going to explore that a little bit. The character of the covenant. Why would David say, you are my Lord, my master, my covenant Lord? It's interesting, but you'll notice provisions here given in keeping with the covenant. In Psalm 16, you will find requests to preserve him, to take refuge in in the Lord. I have no good apart from you. We find in verse 3, the blessings of the saints who are the excellent ones. And we should add the promises of of the Lord in verse 5 as my chosen portion, my cup, my inheritance in verse 6. And the verses, uh, in verse 11, the, the path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. These are covenantal promises, a covenantal pact. And again, think of a legal constitution. What does it mean to be a citizen? Well, the, the blessings of what it means to be an American citizen. I forfeit that if I act against the Constitution, if I'm a, a traitor in any way. But keeping that, I enjoy the benefits of the Constitution and all that it provides as a citizen. David is recognized that he is in a covenantal relationship with God. Israel was taken to Mount Sinai. God established a master-servant relationship with his people and, and promised in Deuteronomy 28 that he would provide protection. He would provide their good and inheritance, life, joy, and pleasure in the company of the believers. This is not foreign to the ancient Near East. It was a greater empire... And lesser nations, those lesser nations would often appeal to the greater empire for protection. But there were always terms attached that needed to be kept. You remember the Gibeonites, when they knew that Israel was conquering the Canaanites. They uh, dressed up as if they'd gone on a long journey, brought stale, moldy bread, and pleaded for a covenant. And Joshua established a covenant with them without seeking the Lord. What was he establishing in that covenant? Protection for the Gibeonites. And in return, the Gibeonites would serve Israel, which they did even unto Saul's day. Remember when the Canaanites went against the Gibeonites because they'd heard in Joshua 9 that they'd forged a covenant. Joshua was obligated to protect them, and that is what he did. This is a covenant lordship, a master-servant relationship. The covenant that was forged there at Mount Sinai... It was a covenant of law. God would protect his people, but his people were to obey the covenant. Deuteronomy 28 and 29. To disobey was to be cursed, to be cut off from the covenant. So there's a a covenant of, of law reflecting obligations from both parties. They were to keep those obligations, or one would be cursed. There's another kind of covenant that David was well familiar with. I think that's the covenant that we, we see alluded to with this statement, Holy One, or Hasid, which we'll talk about. But in Psalm 89, go ahead and go to Psalm 89. What we find is this term hesed. This, the word Holy One, as I said, is the word hasid. It's an adjective describing one who is in a covenantal relationship and acting faithfully according to the covenant. It's, our text says, the Holy One. King James Version often says, faithful. Or the, the one who acts in loving kindness, or steadfastness. It's a covenantal term. It's one who keeps covenant. In Psalm 89, we see a gracious covenant. Verse 1, David It's reflecting this. It's God's promise to David. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed, forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, your steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This term loving kindness... And covenant are interwoven throughout this entire psalm. Verse 33. I will not remove from him my steadfast love. It's the word we get, we get the adjective from this, the seed, the holy one, covenant. Faithfulness, I will not remove from him my steadfast love, my covenant love, my covenant faithfulness, or be false to my faithfulness, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. And what is his promise? That he will establish his throne, that he will raise up a seed, namely Jesus Christ. Hosea chapter 2, another term in which you see covenant and loving kindness brought together, but it's gracious. God provides; He fulfills the terms. In Hosea, it's the very may begins our minor prophets. We'll go to Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Hosea two. Israel has broken God's covenant at Mount Sinai. Did not fulfill her obligations. She's considered a whore, an adulteress. But God makes a promise to Israel. Verse 16, chapter 2. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. He's going to provide a marriage covenant. And no longer will you call me Baal, master. Master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. This is a marriage covenantal talk. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, and here's our word, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord He's brought into an intimate relationship with the Lord, a promise to Israel. Now, back in Psalm 16, what we're arguing is that David understands the importance of this covenant relationship with the Lord. That is because he's in covenant with the Lord that he can say to, to the Lord, Yahweh, the self existent one who thinks of me and who stooped down to visit me in redemption, is because of your covenant. And you're faithful to it. And you can say, God, El Elohim, the creator, the sustainer of all things, preserve me. And in fact, the, the basis for the resurrection here in verse 10 is the Hasid, the Holy One, the, the one who has kept covenant. If you did a study on this word, Hasid or, or Hesed, you would find its covenantal themes are so. Developed throughout the Old Testament, and, and I, we can't look at all these texts, but let me just give you a, a taste. In Second t- Samuel twenty-two twenty-six, we find, "With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful; with the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless." Merciful there is again this idea of covenant kindness. Our word Psalm eighteen twenty-five repeats it: "Merciful with blamelessness." Again, w- why mercy with blamelessness? Because it's integrity, faithfulness of keeping covenant. In Psalm 31, 23, we find the saints, that's our word, holy ones. The Lord preserves the faithful. So these, this covenant-keeping individuals, the saints, are connected with faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? The covenant. In Psalm 43, 1, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly, not hesed people, from the deceitful and unjust man. So we see this hesed correlated with... Faithfulness, godliness, justice. Psalm 50 verse 5, Gather me, my faithful ones, the Hasid, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 20 verse 8, Deal kindly, Hasid, with your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And on and on we can go. It's a covenantal term. It depicts one who is faithful to covenant. Faithful to a constitution. So in summary, Hasid is one who is faithful. It's one who is faithful to God's law, to God's righteousness, to God's justice, to God's covenant. Those who are not Hasid, not the holy ones, are those who are unjust, deceivers. They're unfaithful to God's law and covenant. We find also that Hasid can reflect God's gracious act of, of establishing a gracious covenant of salvation we saw that in hosea 2 it's a betrothal in psalm 89 where god establishes a covenant with david and extends his loving kindness So this is a covenantal term in a covenantal context david can say yahweh the self-existent one god preserve me i could speak to you because of this relationship the requirement of this gracious covenant is faith in verse 1 Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Refuge throughout the Psalms describes one who, who has faith, who trusts in the Lord. His full sufficiency is found in him. In you I take refuge. It's resting, depending. It's the object of this faith, the Lord, in you. He emphasizes his union with the Lord. This idea of in you is, uh, you can find it throughout the New Testament, Paul's language, in Christ, in him in the beloved, in the pictures of marriage with Christ, in the pictures of the body of Christ, in the temple of God, of eating and drinking from Christ, of believing in Christ, of resting in Christ. All the pictures of union with the Lord is the object of our faith. Notice the blessings of this gracious covenant. There's preservation, guarding, tending, keeping. In verse 1, preserve me, O God. It's the blessings of being in relationship with the covenant Lord. Another blessing is, is God's goodness in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, my Adonai, my master, my covenant Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is a unique phrase here. The, the word apart uh, is just a, a simple word all in the Hebrew. It describes one who uh, goes up or who ascends. In Psalm 36, we're told that God's steadfast love extends to the heavens. It uses spatial terms. Here, the psalmist says that I have no good that ascends above God, literally. In other words, He is the highest of heights. So my good is with Him. We often use spatial terms to describe our distinction from God. The emphasis is a distinction of being. He is not like us. He is not a man. He is not a creature. He is not dependent. Theologians are often left to explain this distinction between us and God in terms of what we are not and what He is not. For instance, He is infinite. He is not finite. Or in terms of all, He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. So when David says, I have no good above you, I have no good that ascends you, he's saying that God is most high, He is most holy, He is most majestic, and in effect, God is my good, for I am in you. And because God is the highest and most majestic, there is my highest good in Him. And that too is a benefit of being in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Never wonder why the angels are so amazed as they look into the glories of salvation. Here we get these depictions of angels in Isaiah 6. They're covering their faces. They're in the presence of the glory of God. They can't stand it. They cannot take it in. It's like like looking at the sun for us, but in a much grander scheme. And they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty holy, 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 you're different, you're distinct, you're glorious, you're set apart from us. You are different, you are distinct, and your majesty is distinct. The same majestic God has given himself to sinners to be their highest good, so that we can gain eternal life in God, because our good is in him. We can gain eternal wisdom in God because our good is in him. We can gain eternal power in God, glory in God, joy in God, righteousness in God, because our good is in him. It's David's point. But it comes in the context, of this covenant relationship that he has with the Lord. What is another blessing of this covenant relationship? The saints. Verse 3. The saints. We find God's preservation, God's goodness, and the holy ones, the saints. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. God, When God saves according to his steadfast love, he, he saves a covenant community. He did so with Israel as he redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. We look at the new covenant. We see Christ redeeming, joining, believing Jew and Gentile into the new covenant community of the church. Christ represents his people, the members of the body. We're we're joined together into the body of Christ. We grow together in love. These are the benefits of being in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Preservation, the goodness of God and believers. David says in this context, the saints, as part of this covenant community, I love and I delight in them. They're the majestic ones, the the noble ones, the supreme ones, the ones set apart by God's grace. While we were living in in North uh, Hollywood, California, um, we would go to an Italian restaurant that would sing opera. They would often operatically sing Disney movies. Sometimes it would get quite embarrassing. You'd be sitting there eating and they'd come sit next to you or sit on your lap or whisk you off to dance you away or mess with your hair you know, try to be romantic, I don't know, it was embarrassing, so anytime we'd see them coming over to our table, I'd be like, I'm going to the bathroom, <laughs> you head off. one time I, I brought, brought my dad, and I was like, oh no, and how do I protect him, have got to go to the bathroom, <laughs> got to get out of here, <laughs> which is not the manly thing to do, right, <laughs> but well, on a particular occasion, there were uh, some young girls that were running up to a table behind us, and they, they kept running back there and taking pictures, and then another group would come and take pictures, and... Um, we're going, something's going on. This must be a popular place. And so my, my wife, without looking behind her, just turned around and said, wow, you must be famous or something. And she turned back to me and her eyes were just huge. She goes, Chris, that's Drew Barrymore. Of course, I'm going, who's Drew Barrymore? <laughs> E.T. <laughs> goes through a whole list. You know, you must be famous or something. <laughs> wow. Well, thankfully, she didn't know who, who we were. <laughs> but we just sat there at the table. We were reminded of what it means to be a child of God, that here we're amazed to be in the presence of Drew Barrymore and not recognize it, <laughs> um, but to think that God has called his children into his covenant relationship and saved them, provided these blessings in Christ. And the psalmist says, I love them. They're my delight. We gather together to rejoice in our, 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 our covenant-saving Lord. They're the excellent ones. That's where all my delight is. In verse 4, we find the contrast of those who do not delight in the Lord as their greatest good, not join in the covenant with Him. They don't love the excellent ones. What, what do they love? Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This idolatry is in direct contrast to the, the, the provision of the goodness of God. The believer gets God, the unbeliever turns to another. The, the, the word to run for is a word that describes bartering or exchanging. It's used of wooing or paying a, a bridal payment. In the business of pursuing false gods, of wooing them. Or, as the text says, another, a God replacement. Every sin denies God's goodness, every sin denies God's provision, it replaces God with another. He says, I won't pour out their drink offerings. I won't participate in their meritorious works. I won't even honor them or, or give worship to them. My good is in God. He is my Lord. Idolatry exchanges God's goodness for sorrow, describes their sorrows multiplying from one sorrow to another sorrow. The believer's good, as we're going to see, is in God, but the unbeliever's good is in another. And with that another comes a multiplication of sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. The first incomparable blessing is they find their highest good in God's lordship. And we we sought to use this key term in verse 10, the hasid, the holy one, to help us understand why he has the right to be raised. And we want to further develop that, but help us understand this idea of covenant lordship. And that with that covenant lordship comes blessings, preservation, and goodness in the saints, God himself. Secondly, they find their inheritance in God's person. Verse 5, "The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places; indeed I have a beautiful inheritance." You can go to Joshua, or Deuteronomy, and see the picture of this. Israel brought into a covenant relationship with God. The blessings of keeping covenant and being in that covenant were the blessings of an inheritance of land. And in the book of Joshua, we see the land parceled out. But what's interesting here is David takes this and elevates it and says in verse 5, "...the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance." So acknowledging that God has given himself ultimately as the ultimate portion of inheritance. That God sustains it in verse 5. You hold my lot because God has given him himself. He sustains this inheritance in himself. And it's beautiful to me, he says. Well, if he's our greatest good, and he is, and he's the highest, and our good does not ascend him, it's met in him then we can say, he is beautiful to me. My inheritance is beautiful to me. His beauty is eternal. It's, it's glorious. It's righteous. It's just. It's wise. Oh, how beautiful you are to me, God. You are my chosen portion, my ultimate portion of inheritance. Luther says about this in Psalm 16, This verse is taken out of the law of Moses, where it is written that to the Levites and the priests, there was not an inheritance given among the children of Israel, for the Lord, says Moses, is their inheritance. He's connecting the fact that David is identifying himself with the principle of the Levites. Just as the Levites were set apart, and they didn't receive an inheritance of land, God was their inheritance. He says, ultimately, that's the believer's condition. The believer gets God. God has given himself to the saints. Brooks writes about this union with the Lord. You shall ha- it's as if he said, as if God said, you shall have as true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace to pardon you, my power to protect you, my wisdom to direct you, my goodness to relieve you, my mercy to supply you. My glory shall be yours to crown you. It's a comprehensive promise. For God to be our God, it includes it all. Isn't it glorious that he secures it? And he is the glory of our inheritance. He is the beautiful one. David Dickinson writes about this text and says this, He may lay claim to God and enjoy the possession of God as firmly as his inheritance, as fully as if God were his particular property and portion, as sweetly as his daily food and the portion of his domestic cup. The more the believer considereth what the Lord is and what are his perfections and what is the believer's own interest in God, the more is he satisfied and ravished in the beholding of God. So we're meant to think in terms of coming for resource and strength and supply, as if one would eat or come to an inheritance for provision. We come to God like that. And the more sweetly we think of his glory, the more we understand our own interest in God. Notice in Psalm 17, verse 13, what the unbeliever gets. Psalm 17, 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword from men by your hand O oh Lord from men of the world whose portion is in this life you fill their womb with treasure they're satisfied with children they leave their abundance to their infants we don't often think like that the the wicked are blessed with the portion and inheritance in this life and that is a form of judgment according to this context see we often think well Lord things aren't going well and uh, you you must be chastening me you're holding, withholding some blessing from me because I've sinned. And we flip things around. He's given us himself. What blessing could he be withholding? Except to remind us how great he is. To remind us that these things that we cling to, that we think are blessings, are not blessings in and of themselves. That God is our inheritance and our portion. Thirdly, They find their counsel in God's preeminence. They find their counsel in God's preeminence. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. How can he have this mindset? Because of the pastoral care of the Lord. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Look quickly at these benefits of the counsel of the Lord. When God counsels us, he counsels David. What material does he use? Well... In you I take refuge, union with God, refuge in God, the goodness of God, the exaltation of the saints, inheritance in God, and the resurrection of the dead. So as David is reflecting on the counsel of God at night in the dark times of his life, his heart is just bearing that instruction back to him. And he's been reminded of the goodness of God. In verse 7, he blesses the Lord, he praises the Lord. And in verse 8, he's reminded of the Lord's security and power, the idea of right-hand Uh, indicates power and authority. The Lord is at his right hand. He won't be shaken. So he sees the stability of life. When he's counseled by the Lord, what else does he see in this covenant relationship with God? Well, uh, according to verse 11, the path of life and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is the, the benefit and blessings of being in relationship with God. As God counsels us through his word, Our hearts, even in the dark times, are instructed in the goodness of God and we're reminded of our hope in Him and our security in Him and our joy in Him and that His pleasures are forevermore. That brings us to our last point. This actually should have been on the front end. (laughs) It's it's the weightiest. They find life in God's power of the resurrection of Christ. So here's the question. How can David lay claim to these blessings of God's covenant love? I mean, notice again in verse 10 of Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One, your Hesed, the one in covenant relationship, the faithful one, see corruption. How could David say, I'm the Holy One, I'm the one who kept covenant, therefore I won't see corruption? How can he lay claim to these blessings? Pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy, the path of life, the the preservation of God, God is his greatest good. Believer, how can you lay claim to these blessings? How can I lay claim to these blessings? If I kept covenant? David sinned against God. We know that. We too have sinned against God. How can we be assured of God's promise? And that takes us to Acts 2. So go ahead and go there for the interpretation of Psalm 16. Acts 2 and Acts 13. And we're just going to quickly just draw out Peter and Paul's interpretation that text we'll find it encapsulated right there in acts 225 it's david who spoke of christ as a prophet acts chapter 2 verse 25 he as a prophet spoke of christ david says concerning him in acts 231 david foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the christ so david spoke of christ he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection Now let's go to Paul's interpretation, Acts 13. (laughs) This is amazing. This is where it becomes all of a sudden relevant to us. It's like, yes. Acts 13, 32. Here's Paul in his first sermon. Saul, now named Paul, preaches his first sermon to Jews and God-fearers. So he's going to preach to those who are non-Jews, who believe in the promises that God made to Abraham. You can find that in the context of verse 16, but don't go there. Just look at the beginning of his sermon, verse 32. And we bring the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, that would include David. And this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So God promised good news to the fathers. And verse 33, he fulfilled them by raising Christ from the dead. Now, I don't want you to go back to Acts 2, but if you look at verse 24... Peter says that when God raised him from the dead, he loosed the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So in raising him from the dead, he loosed the pains, the the trap of death, the jaws of death, because it could not hold Christ. Verse 38 of chapter 13. Paul quotes from from David in verse 35, you will not let your holy one see corruption, your hasid. Covenant keeper. And in verse 38, he says this. He's applying it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. That word is justified, by the way. is justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So forgiveness of sins is proclaimed through this man who God raised from the dead, verse 38. In verse 39, we are justified from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, there are two threats that the gospel solves. Forgiveness of sins and justification from the law. And we see again in verse 38, forgiveness of sins all rooted in the resurrection of Christ, the gospel, Paul calls it. And in verse 39, He's justified or freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And notice how he says he's freed from the law, but not by the law of Moses. You see, it underlines the fact that we've transgressed the law, Isaiah 24, the eternal covenant. The law of Moses pictured that. And justification, being freed, underlines the fact that we need to be declared right, in relationship to God's law, of right standing, a law keeper. But Paul is saying, you can never be justified by the law, but we need to be justified from the law. The demands of the law, we must be declared right in accordance to them, but it won't be through the works of the law. Now why is the resurrection of Christ placed into this context? And this is what's so amazing, because in Psalm 1610, he says, the Holy One, the seed, the faithful one. He's the covenant keeper. Any wonder that redemption is placed in terms of the new covenant? The Christ came and fulfilled the law. He took the curse of the law, so we can have forgiveness of sins and frees us from its demands by justifying us in Christ. It's amazing that Peter says that death. Could not hold him. That death was loosed at the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ received our guilt by imputation, by God's reckoning. Death had to deal with the covenant keeper, death had to deal with the Holy One. Death could not hold him, death could not secure the process of decay and corruption, for he was himself not personally a sinner. His death was an act of payment for our sin and he satisfied God's judgment for our sin. He paid the debt, God raised him. And Paul is saying and Peter is saying and David is saying that only through Christ's death and resurrection could sinners be justified from the demands of the law, forgiven of sin and escape the power of eternal death. And David could say, this also applies to me. The covenant keeper. So if you look back at Psalm 16, you can take this and apply it to Christ. And we're not going to do that, but I just want to read these statements in light of Christ. As the storm clouds of eternal judgment come gathering around him, he's ready to face the cross. Eternal God, the God-man, facing the eternal debt and weight of our sin. The storm clouds are gathering, and Jesus prays this prayer through the pen of David. Christ declared his refuge in the Lord. Preserve me, O God, as he's going to the cross. For in you I take refuge. Complete faith in the Lord, in his Father. He declared that in our place, he related to his Father in a covenant relationship. Jesus said, you are my Lord. He has stood in our place as the covenant keeper. The father is the master. You are my Lord. Christ declared that God was as great as good. It's something we have not done and we failed. You are my good, I have no good apart from you. Christ declared his love for the saints in verse 3, the excellent ones. He was dying for them. Christ declared his jealousy for the glory of God. He would oppose the another's that replaced God. Summed up his total devotion to the Lord. Christ sought the Lord as his portion, his joy that was set before him. Christ sought the Lord's counsel for the instruction of his heart and mind. Do we not see him going off in prayer and talking about the work and the will and the word of the Father? Christ only could say this, I have set the Lord always before me. David could never say that in its fullness. He could in Christ. I've set the Lord always before me. Christ never abandoned his devotion to God. He continually trusted in the Lord. He was sustained and secured by the Lord. I will never be shaken. Christ rejoiced through faith in the promise that God would not abandon him to the power of death. He was ready to face wrath. And would God abandon him? No. He believed in the promise of God that he would loose the pains of death, release the jaws of the trap of death. Because you see, death's power is in sin. And when sin's guilt is dealt with, death's power is no more. Christ gloried in the eternal reward given to him because of his faithfulness at the resurrection. He would find life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. He would honor the covenant. He would fulfill it. And he would gather the blessings and give it to us in the new covenant. And so we believer can pray through these same promises. We can say, I have found refuge in the Lord because of Christ. You are my master, my covenant Lord. I stand in the new covenant You can say, I love your people, O Lord, and I am jealous for your glory. I am secure. You're my inheritance. You're beautiful to me. You counsel me. You secure me even through death. My beloved brother this week went to be with the Lord. I know he went to be with the Lord because Jesus Christ accomplished this. He was raised. His faith was in Christ. Christ. We can say, believer as believers, I, I love your eternal life, joy, and pleasure. Believe it with Luther's own words. From this Psalm, he says this. We'll close with this. We see therefore that the scope of this psalm is that Christ, as he is foretold to be a great king and lord and a great and a glorious people, begins to reign contrary to the sense and natural ideas of all men. For other kings are born that they might reign, but this king dies. That he might reign. So this is a wonderful kingdom. It does not consist of those who have high blood, birth, or dignity, nor of the multitude and power of the world, nor of self righteousness and powers, nor of anything else that is of, and makes a show in the world. Then he quotes Isaiah fifty three, ten. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his people. He shall prolong his days, that's the resurrection, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We have seen the promise of God as if in a mirror in David's life, scrubbing it from our philosophies, our worldviews, and allowed us in David's life to see Christ. Yes, as in a mirror, or as Hebrews says, in a type and portrait. May we be impressed with Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have given us yourself in Christ. Lord, as Hebrews 12 reminds us, we have not come to Mount Sinai A place of trembling and fear. A replication of the Isaiah 24 event in which the world is cursed for breaking your law. But we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the new Jerusalem. We have come through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. We have come in the new covenant. You have fulfilled all the obligations. For us, you have taken the curse in Christ. And so we come with open hands Embracing Christ by faith and these blessings that are ours in Christ. And we rejoice and ask that you would increase our love and affection to, to long for these eternal pleasures, joys, and delights that are ours in you. Continue to wean us from the delights of the world, from these things that you used to judge. Cause us to delight in you, for you are our true treasure, joy, and glory in Christ.